Thank you very much, Brother Kurzweil, for your words and for your welcome here. It's a pleasure to be here in a different capacity here, uh, teaching this tonight instead of uh, preaching from your pulpit. It's always a pleasure to be in the midst of God's people and to give some uh, instruction. It's my, um, just for further clarification, I'm, uh, for the last eight and a half years, I've been principal of the seminary. For the last 15 years, I've been professor of New Testament, so I like to think I have some uh, expertise in the field. Um, I, as to Romans, I wrote a book on one chapter of the book of Romans, namely the fourth chapter of the book of Romans, so I won't read it to you tonight, uh, 250 some odd pages, um, but in any case, that perhaps qualifies me for, for, for talking somewhat on Romans, especially tonight in response to a request from, I understand that in, in uh, some of the Bible studies, you're also speaking about uh, Romans. And so what I'll do is I'll talk for a while about Romans, and we'll be open for some questions about Romans, and uh, then I'll talk for a while about the uh, seminary. I have some PowerPoint slides for this on the seminary as well. Uh, I'm not presuming that, you know, your eyes are so good that you can actually read all that fine print in there. Uh, there is a way uh, to bring it closer to you and to make it bigger. Um, the aim of this talk, uh, Living by Grace, Romans, what's it really all about? The aim of this talk is really to attempt to give you, in a nutshell, a complete overall picture as to what Romans is about. Romans is certainly uh, one of the favorite letters of the Apostle Paul, um, uh, perhaps because it gives us, in a, in a somewhat of a nutshell, although Ephesians does so even more, it gives us... Paul's theology, Paul's thinking about God and Christ in a, a nutshell. And uh, um, just got to get the technology cooperating so I can not have to worry about this. Okay. Um, so it gives us uh, what Paul is thinking in somewhat of a nutshell, and it introduces to us. Uh, Paul really is the premier theologian, aside from our Lord Jesus Christ, of course, of the New Testament, because the largest part of the New Testament, the basis of a lot of our doctrine, really comes from the writings of the Apostle Paul. Now, if we want to know what Romans is, is really all about, there are probably some uh, significant introductory uh, facts and, and aspects that we need to consider when we're thinking about the whole book of Romans. And... Um, one of those facts is that Paul has actually never been to Rome himself. He has a sense, uh, of, uh, he has a sense about the fact that uh, he's treading on somebody else's turf, and I think therefore he's also somewhat more gentile than gentle, rather gentile. Gentle. He is a gentile too, but he's also a Jew. But anyway, uh, he's more gentle than he would be on his on on say the the. Uh, when he writes Galatians or Corinthians, he knows how to tell them off at times, but he's more gentle with the Roman church, probably because it wasn't the result of his own work. He writes in chapter 15 that he longed to go, come to Rome uh, when he would go to, to Spain, but we don't have any record of him actually having been in Rome. And instead, the church at Rome was probably planted not by Paul, but by Peter. Reformed people haven't been too good at acknowledging that for some years uh, because that's been a very strong uh, viewpoint of the Roman Catholic Church, right? Because Peter was the first pope in the Roman Catholic view. 
And so uh, that's thought to be sort of a Roman Catholic position. But there's historical evidence which shows that Peter has been involved and probably possibly even died in, in Rome. So it's probably largely the work of the apostle uh, Peter. So that's of significant significance. It's also significance to know that one of the biggest questions that really tore apart the early Christian church was the question about Jew and Gentile. I preached on Ephesians, and I talked about that too. The fact is, the church has always been a Jewish body of people, and it's controversial all of a sudden to bring in a lot of Gentile people, a lot of non-Jewish people, right? So that was a, a huge controversy, particularly in uh, the Roman context. Paul touches on this when he says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, you also, um, also have to realize that in 49 AD, there was a very large section of the city of Rome which had Jewish people. It's sort of like Chinatown in Toronto or the Jewish section of Toronto. There's a large section of Rome, as there was in Alexandria, that were made up of uh, Jewish people. Uh, but in 49 AD, Claudius, the emperor, actually banished some, some say all the Jews who were in Rome. Probably it was a matter of the leaders. There were a, a number of, historically there were a number of skirmishes between Jewish people and the emperors. And in 49 AD, uh, Claudius finally got fed up with it and sent them away. And you can imagine the consequence that would have in your church. If you have a church and all of a sudden the emperor banishes a quarter of your population, that has some significant uh, consequences in your local church. And that would have had those kind of consequences then too. So the Jew-Gentile question was very much alive in the early church and very much alive in the church at Rome, as it was in most of the churches. Um, Suetonius is a Roman historian who, sells, who says he expelled from Rome the Jews <clears throat> constantly making disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. Crestus is a misspelling of Christ, Christ Christos. Um, and, and that happens not only in Suetonius, it happens also in some of the manuscripts from the book of Acts. So it's not uncommon to, uh, to, to make a mistake in terms of the spelling here. But in any case, and not only is it, is it uh, verified there, it actually comes up in Acts 18 as well uh, regarding Corinth. Uh, Paul, Luke says in Acts 18, there in Corinth, Paul met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And you see the relevance of that all the more. Not only does it prove that Suetonius did this or Claudius did this, but it also is relevant because in Romans 16, Paul actually greets uh, some of the people who are in, in, in Rome, and he greets also Priscilla and Aquila. So this whole question of Jews leaving is, a, is an actual question. At the time that Paul writes Romans 16, they seem to be back in, in Rome. So there are tensions in Rome between Jews and Greeks, and precisely be, that's also the background between Roman, behind Romans 14 and 15, about the weak and the strong, the powerful and the powerless, questions of food, questions of days, and the matter of accepting one, one another. 
and also the questions regarding uh, the law. So those are some of the important things in the background of the whole letter to the Romans. Um, then you also have to ask the question, and I think this is really important, what is the main reason for the letter? And scholars have written lots of stuff about the reasons for the letter, many opinions, many positions. Um, I have a position that I have worked out, and I think it has a lot to do with this question. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? What you need to realize is that Paul is probably the first one who pushes as hard and as clearly and as vocally about the doctrine of grace. Salvation is by grace and by grace alone. But what happens if you really push grace really hard? Well, then people start to say, yeah, but doesn't that sort of make us kind of lazy? Like, we're not going to do any works because it's all by grace. We can do what we want to do because it's all by grace. That's what the Roman Catholics said to Reformed people when they came up and said, justification by faith through grace alone. And that's an old accusation that was there also in the days of Paul. And you hear it in Romans 6, verse 1 after Paul has expounded some of the doctrines of grace in 4 and 5, then he answers this rhetorical question. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? But there's another text which is even more pertinent, more specific. Why not say, this is Romans 3 verse 8, why not say as we are being slanderously reported as saying, we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Paul is being clear here that there are people who are saying that his teaching is that we should just go ahead and do evil because then God can show more of his grace. It's very similar to, to, to Romans 6 verse 1. Um, but uh, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Well, it's very similar, but except that now he's saying there are people in Rome, people in this context, who are accusing him because he comes forth with a gospel of grace, they're accusing him of promoting evil. Let there be evil, then God can show his good and his grace. Uh, Paul becomes quite upset about that and suggests their condemnation is deserved. I think this is a key text, the key text in my view, to what's happening in Romans. Paul is addressing the question, how do we, the, the accusation is that his gospel of grace is going to make lazy Christians, people who aren't going to uh, uh, do good things because it's all out of grace anyway. And so what Romans is, from beginning pretty much to the end, is a defense of the idea that the only way people are really going to do that which is good is by grace, by way of the fact that they are in Christ. Nothing spurs us on to do good and to live Christian lives better than the gospel of grace. Getting a good talking to might help. Getting a good sermon may help, but getting a good talking to about any religion will help, whether it's Christianity or Buddhism or Muslim or whatever. Any religion, if it's just a talking to, will make you better people. But the gospel of, of Paul, the gospel of the scriptures, is not just trying to make you better people. 
It's trying to make us new people. And how do we become new people? We become new people by way of being in Jesus Christ. And that's really what Paul is saying. So what's he doing? He's defending his gospel. Sometimes he calls it, he talks about my gospel, because that's what his opponents say, Paul's gospel. Well, Paul is saying my gospel is the gospel, the only gospel. Let anybody else be accursed if they come with another gospel. So, um, but let's work this out. It comes somewhat similarly in Romans 16. There's also those who are the troublemakers, along with Romans 3, verse 8. Those people seem to surface somewhat in Romans 16. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So there, too, he speaks for a few moments about his opponents. The question comes up, of course, how does Paul know all this? He didn't start the church at Rome. How does he know all this? Well, the key to that question is in Romans 16. It's a smart move. At the end of his letter, he greets all kinds of people that he knows, You're talking about a missionary world in which the missionary travels, but the people travel also from Corinth to Rome and wherever else. And he he lists all these people who who are in the church at Rome, and thereby he tells us how he knows, probably from some of them, he heard about some of the troubles in Rome and some of the accusations that are being hurled also against Paul. And we can notice there he greets 26 friends, many of them dear to him, Many ladies, many sisters in the church, and notice also Priscilla and Aquila, who are now in Rome once again. So, uh, those are the main reasons for the letter. What is Paul's answer to the accusation that his gospel makes people lazy? Uh, His answer is a, a systematic and clear presentation of the gospel. God's righteousness is for all who believe through grace alone. How does he work that out? Well, chapters 1 to 3, he starts talking about the doctrines of sin and about the need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. His theme there is 1 verse 17, in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. So this gospel is revealed in the scriptures Uh, But the question then becomes, how does it get into us and transform us? Well, it's not going to do that by way of the power of positive thinking, by way of some scoldings and some motivations, because we got a problem, whether we're Jew or Gentile. Chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, Gentiles deserve God's wrath. He cites all the things that Gentiles are into. He talks about homosexuality and all kinds of other stuff. And he says, this is a sorry lot, a sorry scene. Although they knew God, they are without excuse. Romans 1.21. Very strikingly, he says, the invisible nature and his divine power is revealed in creation. Those are significant statements God's divine power, his invisible nature is revealed in creation, but even though God shows himself in those ways, we suppress the truth of ourselves, and we are not able to make that into some kind of saving knowledge because of our 
fallen condition. And so as Gentiles, we are without excuse because we knew God, but we have suppressed this. But when the Jews, as a result, started getting comfortable, the Jews in Rome started getting comfortable, then he turns his guns on the Jews, and he shows that they also deserve the wrath of God, because although they possess the law and they receive the oracles of the scriptures, Paul says, they, uh, they do the same things. Even though they have this revelation, that in itself doesn't seem to help them, because they do the same things as, as they're judging other people on. So it's a sad and sorry position. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. There is no one righteous, not even one. Total depravity, we called it later on. Uh, we are not able of ourselves to bring ourselves to any kind of situation of being able by ourselves and of ourselves to do that which is good. We are perishing in this condition. So what happens then? Well, then in Romans 4 to 11, he starts to expand on how this righteousness, which God reveals in the gospel, actually begins to come towards us, towards the people of God. And he uh, does that in, in, uh, in chapter 4, he talks about being uh, whether or not we can be justified uh, by works. Well, he says uh, that it doesn't work that way. He actually pulls out the examples of Abraham and David. It's very interesting. I rehearsed all this material in my, in my, in my book. Abraham, in the Jewish understanding, is a man who did incredibly, an incredible man of uh, many good things. I mean, he kept the law of Moses to a T, according to the Jewish literature, even before Moses was born. That's pretty good, eh? You can do that even before he's born. Uh, that's in the Jewish literature. Well, what does, Paul, what does Paul do with that? Paul actually refers to Abraham in Romans 4 as, as ungodly. This is the father of all believers. Paul says he's ungodly. And the only way he gets anywhere is by way of righteousness which comes through faith. Paul quotes and works out Genesis 15, verse 6, four, five, about four times in Romans 4. He reckoned to him... Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It's the act of faith. And Romans 4 is a passage which pushes out the doctrine of justification by faith through grace. He talks about David, who does what is evil, but in his case, he needs to be reconciled to God by way of having sin removed. And he talks about Abraham and Sarah when they're very old. How do they, uh, how do they manage to live before God? By faith alone, they have a promise from God, but the only way they're gonna, this promise is going to come reality is because they believe, even though their bodies are as good as dead, God's promise is going to come true. And so it's all about justification by faith through grace. The conclusion comes, the conclusion to chapter 4 comes in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. You've got to realize as you read the Bible, the verses and chapters were not put in the Bible until about the year 1500. 
right? Stop interrupting your reading by way of verses and chapters. This is an addition from many, later, many years later on, and actually there's an interesting tradition that the guy who actually gave us the, the verses and the chapters was riding a horse while he was doing it. His son actually writes about the fact that he was riding a horse, and sometimes where they put the verses and the chapter divisions looks like the horse would just went over a bump or something or, or galloped or something like that. Well, here too, uh, the conclusion of chapter 4 comes down in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith into this grace in which we now stand. I mean, I teach my students, whenever the Bible says, therefore, you have to ask the question, what is it there for? It's there for the purpose of drawing the conclusion from the previous verses. And the conclusion is, we have been justified by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And it's all by grace. All kinds of verses that talk about the fact that we need uh, the grace of God. And that theme, so what happens there is we begin to see in chapter 4 this theme of the people of God being in Christ. Where does this justification, the sanctification comes from? It comes from being in Jesus Christ. And that gets further clarified in the subsequent chapters. In chapter 5, what's chapter 5 about? Well, Paul talks about Adam. We all sinned in Adam, and we receive new life in Christ. The one man Adam, the one man Jesus Christ. Christ died for the ungodly. He had referred to Abraham as ungodly. Now he refers to us as ungodly. At just the right time when we were still sinners, uh, Christ died for the ungodly. Sin and death through Adam, but God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. The nature of the gift is, it's a pure gift. You don't do something to get it. First of all, it's gift. And the result should be all kinds of things, but it's given to us for free. Grace alone. And then chapter 6 goes on to say, shall we go on sinning? Well, we shouldn't go on sinning because we have died with Christ and we were buried with Christ and we have risen with Christ. And he says, instead, when you look at who you are, you should count yourself dead. I mean, isn't, doesn't this begin to, 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 to bring home the message to us that we are new people in Christ, and as new people in Christ, we're going to do things better than we ever did them before, and we're going to do all kinds of right and wonderful and God-glorifying things because we are in Christ. And that becomes a further question about uh, that gets raised in chapter 7 and chapter 8. Uh, chapter seven, chapter eight have a lot of lot to. Chapter seven has a lot to say about law, but the focus really in chapter seven, I think, is not the matter of the position of the law. The focus in chapter seven is the fact that the law cannot do, cannot bring about this new person. This law cannot bring about these new actions in and of itself, because we are flesh, and our flesh is sinful. And the conclusion to chapter 7 comes actually in chapter 8. Not only where it says, therefore no con there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but also what it says in Romans 8 verse 3, that um, what the law was powerless to do, uh, God has done by his spirit uh, in, in us. 
Um, Romans 8, verse 3, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So there's the conclusion from out of 7. The law was powerless because we are problematic, but God does it by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So again, good things happen not just because of us and by way of us, but by way of Jesus Christ our Lord. And therefore there is no condemnation for those in Christ. The first verse of chapter 8 and the last verse, we are more than conquerors in Christ. What does Paul do after that? So he's talked for, for five, six, seven, eight, four chapters about what it is to be in Christ. After that, he comes back to those questions that he started off with about the Jew and Gentile. At the beginning of chapter 9, he's in pain for the sake of his brothers. Uh, he says theirs is the kingdom, theirs is the law, theirs are the promises, but he's, he's, he's very upset because he's thinking about the perdition that awaits those who are his brothers and sisters. Um, but again, he talks about it's not about being the natural children of God, but about being children of the promise. Abraham in Romans 4 is the man of the promise of God. And those who are true children of Abraham are those who live by the same promise. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. But his point is God did not reject his people. His point is that the Gentiles are grafted in, and so all Israel will be saved. What is he saying? He's saying, well, there's the Jewish people, but the people who are truly Jewish, the people who are really the children of God, are the people who are not Jewish just externally, but internally, because it's always been a matter of circumcision of the heart. Circumcision always talked about the heart uh, in terms of what it was pointing to, and Paul says that in Roman, at the end of Romans 2. So his point then is, what you've got is the Jewish people and the, those who truly believe, children of the promise, and you've got Gentiles who come in, people like you and me, who come into the people of God, grafted in, and the result is, so all Israel will be saved. And when he talks about all Israel there, I don't believe he's talking about all the Jewish people, according to the flesh, but Israel in the wider sense of all those who are of the true Israel in Jesus Christ. So that really, I think, is his solution to the, to the Jew-Gentile problem. The solution is in Christ. Um, but then he goes on, and he... Uh, so that there's that whole second section. The first section was about sin. The second section was about the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, from 4 to 11. And then he goes on in chapters 12 to 16, and notice it starts off again with a therefore. When we ask, what's the, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, it's there to impress upon us the results and the consequences of everything that he has said before. Uh, when he moves into the practical application, the consequences of this gospel. What are the consequences? Well, the consequences are that good things actually start to happen among the people of God. 
things that you don't begin to do just because you've been scolded multiple times, but things that you begin to do because you're motivated by the Spirit of Christ and Christ dwells in you and you in Christ. Uh, therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. We're urged to offer up not just a piece of our lives, but our whole lives as sacrifice to God. Use your gifts. He, you know, just highlighting some of the things he mentions in 12 and 13. Uh, there should not be any revenge. We should obey the authorities. Love your neighbor is the fulfillment of the commandments. And so when you read chapters 12 and 13, you've got to ask the question, is this a man who actually promotes that which is evil? That was what his, his opponent said. He promotes that which is evil with his gospel, his free, easy gospel of grace. He promotes that which is bad. Well, does that look like bad stuff? To, to, to use your gifts and to love sincerely and to, and to obey authorities and, and obey the commandments? Or what about chapter 14 and 15, where he talks about the weak and strong, and you've got these echoes of Jew and Gentile controversies in the background, and where Paul says, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Do what leads to peace. In 15 verse 7, he says, you know, okay, you've got some differences. Well, cut each other some slack and, and get along with each other and be at peace with one another. Accept one another as Christ accepted you. Christ didn't accept you after you got your act together and after you put everything in, in order. He accepted you first and then you began to put your life together. Again, I'd ask the question, is this a man who is promoting that which is evil? And the answer, of course, in my judgment, would be uh, certainly no. And I think the, the whole book of Romans is saying, no, he does not promote that which is evil. How does the book end? Well, he talks about being minister to the Gentiles. He talks about his plan to visit Rome. He's talked about this offering, which is actually a symbol. It's an offering for Jerusalem. So it's a symbol. The Gentile churches are presenting this offering, offering for the Jewish central church, uh, Jerusalem. And so that's a symbol also of this new unity between Jew and Gentile. And he lists the many greetings to the brothers and sisters. And he ends with a delightful benediction. Now, the interesting thing as well uh, here is that there are some, we, I am aware, we've got lots of uh, catechism students here, and it's good to have catechism students here. We said it in the hallway, it's this catechism 301, not 101, 301, right? Uh, a little bit more advanced. Uh, but anyway, um, notice the similarities with the catechism. I'm not the first one to draw this. It's come out obvious very often because Romans, I suggested, has got these three parts. Romans 1 to 3 about sin. Uh, Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 to 11 about salvation, life in Christ. And then after 12, we get the section, therefore, we get the section uh, about our Christian lives. Well, that's the exact same division as in our catechism. Uh, part after you get the theme of the catechism in Lord's Day 1, then you get the section about sin and guilt, Lord's Days 2, 3, and 4. We are unable to do any good. We are inclined to all evil. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the law of God, a passage that Paul quotes also in Galatians. 
there is no one righteous. It's really the same message as we have in Romans, couched in different language, in different terms of different questions and answers, but there's a strong similarity here between chapters 1 to 3 and Lord's Days 2 to 4. And why am I bringing this up? Because the, the answer to the, why should we, how do we live Christian lives is the same whether you are looking in Romans or whether you're looking in, in the catechism. You're going to live a Christian life only if and insofar as we are in Christ. It's not the scoldings, it's not the whippings, it's not being told off again and again that's going to produce the really good behavior. It's going to be the fact that we are new people in Christ, and these new people are going to live new lives. Because Lord's Days 5 all the way to 31 are all talking about the fact that we are in Christ, we have a true faith, a summary of the Apostles' Creed, which is expanding and expounding on the, on the key doctrines of the faith, and it talks about the means of grace, uh, the word as well as the sacraments. Very central in this respect, I think, is this Lord's Day 23 uh, Lord's Day 20, you have that same accusation of the Roman Catholics and the Reformers, right? It sounds like the things they said to Paul. Uh, does this teaching not make people careless and wicked? That's what they said to Paul. Your teaching makes people careless and wicked. The answer is exactly the same answer as we have in all the Romans. It's impossible that those grafted into Christ should not bring fruits of thankfulness. And notice it has nothing to do with... It has nothing to do with getting a scolding or getting preached at in some moralistic fashion. It has to do with the fact that they are in Christ. If people are grafted into Christ, Christ is always a fruitful tree. And if we're grafted into Christ, we will produce fruits of thankfulness. That's the language. And that's pure Pauline theology. It's impossible that those grafted into Christ should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. If you're grafted into the vine which has become all Israel, you're going to live a new life. Um, so, you know, we shouldn't fear the doctrines of grace. It's all grace. 100% grace. Anything you do is, is in response. It's not uh, anything else but a response and a result. But it's not in order to merit anything. And the same thing then uh, comes up in the third part because you've got uh, Lord's Day 32 to 52 talking about how God's people are going to live according to his law, not in order to be saved, but because they are saved. And, and uh, they're going to pray for his grace. This is what the section on prayer is about. It's about the fact that even though we're in this third section of the catechism, we still, God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing pray to him for them, right? We still need, even at the end, the grace of God, our whole Christian life. And that you see that also very pointedly at the very first question uh, and answer of Lord's Day 32. It's just... Lord's Day 32, the question is summarizing Lord's Days 5 through to 31, and it's saying, since we have been justified by faith through grace alone, why must we do good and good works? A little longer than that, but catechism students can correct me. But notice the, this, this is 
not quite logical. Why must we do good works? We expect the answer to say, because we are now so good and we are now so wonderful that we can do these good works. But it doesn't say that. It says, because Christ, having redeemed us, also renews us. The Christ who, in the whole second section, has been, we've been talking about his redemption in Christ, well, the third section is all about how this Christ renews us. The third section of the catechism isn't actually so much about us as it is about the things that Christ will do in us as a result of this doctrine of redemption. So again, it's not about the scoldings, it's not about the moralism, it's about being in Christ. Are we concerned about people living proper lives? Don't focus on the externals, don't focus on the rules. Ask the question, are they really Christians, do they love the Lord? Is their heart right with God? Then it will come right. You can't do it. And, and we all face that as, 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 as parents and as uh, young people. It will happen by the Spirit of God or it will not happen at all. Um, and that, the Lord's Day 32 section is hooked right in with this point of Lord's Day 23. It's impossible that those grafted into Christ should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Those two pieces are really hooked in. So the result is uh, very similar to Romans, right? Uh, where you have chapter 12, verse 6 to 16, talking about all the consequences of this and doctrines of grace from all the previous chapters. Here you have uh, the last section of the Catechism also drawing some of the, the consequences for us. So it really is about, uh, Romans and the Catechism are about living by grace, living in Christ. And, and uh, yeah, so those are the sections of it all, and there's the logic uh, of it all together.